Hello, welcome to my secret obsession. In today's bonus episode, we are talking with Drea Moore. She is an author on Amazon's Vela platform. She is going to explain some of the ins and outs of publishing for us, and then we will listen to the first two chapters of her book, His Tenant Problem. Good morning. We're talking with Drea Moore. Um, I want to thank you, Drea, for coming on um, our show today. Drea publishes her novels on Amazon's Vela platform, and the Vela platform is new. It's uh, something with Amazon where authors post their writing as they do it. So you're kind of doing mini chapters in your book. Readers can reply and make comments if they want so that they kind of have more of a relationship with the author. Drea, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind? Okay. Uh, My name is uh, Drea Moore. I publish contemporary fantasy under the name of Anna Bridge. I have a degree. I call it my college degree is in anthropology and uh, with a focus on sociocultural. When I was young, really young, and I started reading fantasy magazines, they do, you know, they publish like advice and they publish like uh, short stories Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. And an author that I really respected said, what I wish authors knew more was about the business. My form of teenage rebellion was less against my parents and more against everything else. So when I saw that, I was like, ha, well, I will be the writer that learns this. Right. And I was blessed in that my mom was a poet and she had uh, attempted novels before. So we had craft books and things like that uh, lying around. I didn't need to go and start learning about publishing out of the house. (laughs) Right. So I started devouring those at home. And that was in the 90s. So you started to watch. Like back then, the only thing that existed was a traditional publication. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way to get in was publishing short stories through these uh, literary mags. Mm -hmm. Like I was reading. Right. Which is why I was reading them. (laughs) And while I was in high school and college, the entire world of publishing changed right under our feet. Right. Mm -hmm. It was really strange because though I'm studying culture in college and in my off hours, I'm trying to pay attention to what's happening in uh, when the big six become eventually become the big five and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff and the rise of, uh, of indies and blogging and do you blog a book and uh, eventually, like the Kindle, and before that, like EPUB, e ink, and this fusion of technology and writing, and where it was going to lead down the road. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, like, for someone who felt like I needed a plan, I needed to know how to step into publishing, how, like, I wanted, I wanted a map. It's like, if I was going to query, I needed all of the steps. This is what yeah. I do. This is the commitments that I make. And then I just go for it. Right. And with the t- technology changing that much, it was really, really hard to make a decision. Teenagers and maybe people in their 20s right now, when they think about reading, they don't grasp just how hard it was to get into publishing before all of the internet stuff, because you really did only have the big publishers that would be people who would look for you or like the little magazines, like you were saying, you know, there, you couldn't just post a book. You couldn't write a book and just put it out there for the world to see, you know, now it is so incredible and it makes it attainable for so many more people. 
Yeah. And the other thing that happened as uh, these things uh, rose was there actually there used to be a lot more traditional publishing options. There used to be a lot more small presses. Mm -hmm. There used to be more imprints and things like this. You would see more ways to actually get into uh, traditional publishing. But as the monopolies grew within the publishing houses, Mm -hmm. they ended up in this like battle with Amazon. Mm -hmm. Uh, They started doubling down on the titles that they felt could make them the most money. And there ended up being this squeeze. It just, so while, while the same time, Indie was beginning to rise and eventually gain, um, I, I feel like, respect. And even now, I would argue it might be the best way for a new author to start publishing. Before, it, it didn't have that it didn't have that uh, allure or even ability. So that's new. <laughs> but right. it only it's partially happened because of the squeeze in the publishing houses. It's partially happened as uh, it's harder. And you've had more horror stories of people who start a career in traditional publishing and over time are not able to maintain it. And they're like, you know, F this, I'm going to just <laughs> indie publish. Right. And you hear more and more of those stories because the traditional publishers are more and more squeezed and you can see the relationship between technology and basically profit. And like I said, the condensing of these monopolies into smaller and smaller hands. And you can see that having kind of a knockdown effect on the opportunities for authors Mm -hmm. over, over this span from, um, from 98 to, uh, like 2020. So would you say it's harder or it's easier for an author to get published? Traditionally, it used to be easier than it is now. I would say it's getting harder to get uh, traditionally published. The options are getting smaller. The money pot that the big publishers are willing to put into small, like newer authors Mm -hmm. feels smaller. The last 10 years or so, they've been less willing to uh, take risks. In uh, 2012 to 2016, I worked an independent bookstore locally. And I saw some of this from like the book selling side where buying books is part of like the reader identity. You know, we all, we hoard. Right. We buy like a crazy ton of books. Having books, being a reader, this is part of our identity. And things like uh, book talk and all of that have really um, amped that up, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our point of connection. We are all readers. And the response with the publishers is nice. I mean, it's prettier and prettier covers, covers that right. you want on yourself. It's even in the indie uh, movement, it's, you know, the special editions and all of these things, and they're gorgeous. And you're like, ooh, I want that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing is like, the more that we have that and the more you have really expensive books, it's also an indication that books are not as, at least physical books, are not as uh, readily consumable as they were in the 90s mm-hmm. when you went and you were going like mass market paperback. Like, I'm going to go into the bookstore, I'm going to Scribner's and I'm going to get 10 of these. And I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. now if we're doing that, if we're impulse buying a ton of content and it's content now, like it, it we're, we're, changing this language and we're changing our association with it because the culture is changing mm-hmm. around books, the place of books in our lives, so on and so forth. We're buying ebooks. We're buying ebooks. And I feel like uh, Vela and uh, Dream and iBook, all of 
all of the serials are in that range Mm -hmm. about consuming books digitally because it fits our lifestyle better now as our lives change with the times. Yeah. And that's normal. It's normal for things to change. So it, I don't feel like it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I'd argue for authors, it's actually a good thing because mm-hmm. this platform, uh, Vela, and uh, from people I know who are on KU, I'm not there yet. Authors get paid once a month. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's like teachers get paid once a month. Right. You know, that's a regular paycheck. Yeah, it feels like a traditional salary type of thing where you you know you're going to get something or you feel you're going to get something. And if you have something, you can grow that something, you can budget that something, that something is doable, that something can be a living wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not, not something that in our culture is has ever been common for writers unless you made it big. Right. Most writers, like even when I was, you know, starting to research it in the 90s and the advice back then was go on speaking tours. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, teach writing locally. Go talk about your books or something, you know, related to them. Like if you have a nonfiction book, you have a built-in speaking tour, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. You do something well in fantasy, do that. Uh, I had started going to cons and stuff when I was in my early 20s because that's what you did. You made the connections with other writers. You could meet agents there. You could do all of these things, cons, conferences, anything writing related that, that you know, kind of tapped you into that community. But, you know, IRL in real life, not the wide ability that we have to connect now digitally with people who are potentially even more likely to be in your your audience, right? Mm-hmm. Give you better feedback on your craft when you're uh, networking online and, and getting people to critique. In in the past, when you know you're limited to people you just people you knew, and I started my you know critique journey that way, <laughs> um, it was you could end up never having been critiqued before with people who didn't read the sort of thing that you wanted to write and you didn't know if you were trying to fit into what the industry required of you or what these people personally were looking for. And it was hard to walk that line when you were a young writer. It's really hard to walk that line and know which, you know, where it is. And so it takes, you know, messing up and years later and then you figure it out. I think that the technology has done a lot of good and there's a lot more opportunities for authors to just be authors mm-hmm. uh, now than there was in the past. And so I'm excited and optimistic. And that's why one of the reasons I've chose Vela. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Kindle Vela program. But that's new. You know, I, yeah. you know, two years ago, I wasn't really making any money, even though I was selling books. It wasn't enough to really feel like, oh, I am making money. So we have it ingrained in our brains that when we are paid for our stuff, it has value. Yeah. And we have to break away from that. I know, like, especially artists, our stuff has value whether or not, you know, you're given the that monetary compensation. But it's hard. We are, you know, to use an anthro term, we're enculturated with that concept. Right. That... You that somebody else is willing to pay for this, so ah, somebody likes it. And the truth that, like with Kindle Vela, I'm right now 
using my income there. I'm trying to save up for running ads and uh, and paying for for um, a proper like developmental editor and doing all of that. Because mm-hmm. right now I have I have people proofreading and I have uh, critique partners, and they do some light work, but they don't do the depth of work. Right. That you're looking that uh, yeah. Well, a bit yeah. That you would really want. Um, before releasing a a full book, right? Uh, but I'm not like my stuff's also not always rough. I have one story that the, my very first Vela that's complete right now is uh, rough towards the end because I just was like, I'm done with this and I want to work on other things, so I just posted right. it without like too much editing. Yeah. You know, I looked over, it, I was like, uh, that that's embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, you know, like it's a part of trying to learn how to be an indie author and you get paid once a month and you can learn the marketing, you can learn all of that stuff. And, and there's so many other authors who are further down the road of independent publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's helpful because, you know, you can talk to people, you can learn from people, you can connect with people, you yeah. can get advice. Mm-hmm. And I love the community for that. I absolutely love the community for that. Um, I think that wearing many hats was probably one of the things that was keeping me focused on traditional publication for so long. Mm-hmm. I was curious about independent indie publication. And uh, in 2009, I had led my uh, in real life uh, critique group uh, to uh self-published an anthology fully self-published it's not online but we got the ISBN i had uh, an artist a designer my graphic designer walked me through using indesign i formatted the inside of it we had we had art poetry uh short stories inside the anthology and uh, we had a release event. So I was basically trying to employ everything that I had been learning. It turned out really well. I learned a lot through that whole process. Mm-hmm. And I knew like, yeah, you definitely have to be when you're an indie author, you have to wear all the hats. Yeah. And if you're not the person doing all of the graphics and the ad copy and designing covers and uh, formatting and doing all of the things. If you're not the person, then you have to have the money to pay for it. Right. So like the sweet spot is to, I feel like, is to know how to do everything Mm -hmm. and then have the funds to be able to choose which you actually are willing to do and which you are. Right. Yeah. What you can so, afford to have uh, farmed out to somebody else to do. Yeah. That would be really nice. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people, when they when they scoff at indies now, um, it's a part of this long entrenched concept of in, uh, indie books being less than mm-hmm. traditionally published. And the reason why was because originally, like, 20, 30, 40 years ago, independent novels were not edited and formatted and they weren't held like they they couldn't be done the way we do it today. Right. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, binding and all of the technology that goes into making a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has become more accessible. So usually that means it's become you know, I, I don't know this part for a fact, but I'm reading between the lines. Um, it's become cheaper. 
Yeah. And if it's become cheaper and more accessible, uh, then it's becoming easier. It's also because of the internet, authors have more ability to access knowledge of how to go about uh, producing a uh, professional product Mm -hmm. than they ever did before. And a lot of independent authors do that. Not everybody, but sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a stumble. It's always been a stumble. It's just in the past, like people who stumbled and had trouble getting into publishing were just turned down by agents. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it happened behind the scenes and readers didn't see the decades of work that went into crafting a novel or individuals who like me can write a lot of content and I can write a lot generally in um, a short amount of time, even though I like my, my sprint sessions are (laughs) like 200 words, but I can still produce a lot of content quickly because I'm practiced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The years and years I put into writing before that I got unpaid for, it is like brain training, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's, there's a lot that is behind the scenes, but before somebody even launches a first novella that readers don't see and they don't know about, um, because everybody's, everybody's writing journey is, is different. Because, you know, I think you pointed out a lot of interesting, true stuff and, and stuff that people who don't write would maybe even find interesting just to give them a better understanding of the process of, what happens before you even get to read that book? Um, yes, you know that you love, and yeah. other authors, I'm sure, enjoy this because it's kind of reaffirming to to hear that somebody else kind of feels the way you feel. Because I know uh, when you were talking about the people not enjoy, you know, not being paid, you know, it wasn't until like this past year that when I started Vela that when people asked me, "What do you do for a living?" And I would say, "I'm a writer." You know, in the, in the past, I would say oh, I like to write or, you know, it was like, I didn't feel yeah. confident to say I'm a writer or I'm an author. Yeah. But, um, Until we have that money behind it. Yeah. It's, it's so true. It's like, like that. That was me too. I was aspiring for like, you know, just about 20 years in there, you know? Yes. It's like I had books under my belt, but yeah, no, that's so true. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel real until you feel like you're getting that um, financial, uh, bump. And, you know, it, it is too bad because, you know, I would imagine there are hundreds of thousands of books out there that have been written that people would enjoy, but their authors wouldn't feel like they're really successful yet because they haven't gotten the money. And yes. uh, and that's too bad because people do enjoy our books. People do enjoy um, being able to, to get in a seat, get in the bed, get in get in your comfy chair and, and to just lose yourself in another world. So I'm glad that we're now getting to the point where people are starting to understand that with writers, you know, there is more to uh, more to writing than just scribbling down words and that yeah. perhaps one day they would, that would be appreciated or people would acknowledge the amount of work and time that goes into each book. Things like Vela it's basically for for readers who are actually interested in understanding how writing and books and writers' minds work. Mm-hmm. 
it's very much a watching the sausage get made. If you read all of the episodes and then you're helping the author, like crowdfunding, like Kickstarter, you really right. are in a lot of ways, they're editing and production process. And then they go and uh, and indie release on Amazon and the KU uh, or, you know, like into Ingram, you, you know, like the trifecta. If you do that, and you watch that product be made, you are part of that, you know, mm -hmm. and you have seen and you could see the changes. Yeah. You would be able to be a reader who could see, like, what is the purpose of a developmental editor? Well, yeah. you read the you read the and I won't call it a rough draft because I feel like there's a lot of us who, you know, I have rough spots, mm -hmm. but most of my velas have undergone at least some amount of editing, you know, like two or three passes right. before I load them. And so I feel like it's not a rough draft on Vela. Yeah. It is it is a draft. I feel that way too. I feel like yeah. um, when I put something on the Vela and then I think, okay, if I'm going to publish this as a real book, there's not a whole lot I'm going to need to change. I maybe yeah. um, blend some chapters because with Vela, I try to keep my chapters to 600 or 700 words. So it's almost more like getting a glimpse within a bigger chapter. Oh, interesting. So, you know, you, I would have to do things like that, but I don't feel like I would need a whole new rewrite or, you know, I feel like it is better than just a rough draft. Um, yes. When I put it on Vela. I am so glad you were able to talk to us about that. Uh, thank you. And um, it's interesting to, to hear. I like talking with other authors because everybody does have such diverse interests and, and no one's talked to me about publishing yet before. So this was, this was wonderful. So thank you. Okay. I'm glad you. <laughs> and no, I thought it was great. Thank you so much. And awesome. for the listeners, um, I'm going to play his tenant problem. His tenant problem uh, by Anna Bridge, which is the pen name I use for my contemporary romance. Uh, what I have. <laughs> Inevitable heartbreak walks into the bistro with money and a dimpled smile. I just learned the new owner of my complex is evicting all tenants, so there is no time to invite more disaster into my life. I shed my secondhand heels and flee for the nearest bus stop. Unlucky for me, I'm a barista at the city's hottest cafe, so running into him, again, doesn't require stalking. We hit it off as friends, though he wants more. And when I learn he's the new owner of my complex, heartbreak, right? Yeah, I love that. That's great. And I, when I read the first two chapters, and so our listeners will be able to hear those, I love the way you wrote. I thought it was beautiful. Um, Thank you. Please stay and listen to the first two chapters of His Tenant Problems. And thank you again, Drea, for coming on. And um, I also have uh, your Cookie Crumbles is your holiday book that yes. we will be playing um, as, as one of these Sundays in December. So. Be on the lookout uh, for another book by, uh, what was the pen name you used? Uh, Anna Bridge. For, Anna. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you. I hope you have a great day. And um, thanks for stopping by, Drea. Bye. Thank you. His tenant problem. Inevitable heartbreak walks into the bistro. With money and a dimpled smile. I just learned the new owner of my complex is evicting all tenants. So there is no time to invite more disaster into my life. I shed my second-hand heels and flee for the nearest bus stop. Unlucky for me, I'm a barista at the city's hottest cafe, so running into him again is unavoidable. 
We hit it off as friends, though he wants more. And when I learn he's the new owner of my complex, heartbreak, right? Ella Covey, Chapter 1, Beans in the Bag I sigh, stuffing the mop and bucket in their proper place before opening the industrial fridge. Three pitchers of iced tea? Check. Mocha mix chilling? Check. Lemonade? Three cartons of whole milk? Four of non-fat? Six soy? Three almond? Three oat milk? All good. Exhausted and wired with an unheard amount of caffeine coursing through my veins, I turn through the cafe to review that the milk wands have been cleaned, the machines shut down. My fingers trail over the wooden countertops as I stride into the main cafe, passing small wood and metal tables and trendy industrial lighting. I jangle my keys just to fill the large empty space with sound and release the caffeine-induced nerves. I love the buzz of the cafe, the customers and the music, and the chatter of my co-workers, but closing was such a head trip. Seeing the place usually filled with so much life be so dark and lonely. I slip into the crisp evening air of Santa Isabella and locked the front doors. The city noises envelop me as a cascade of beeping cars and a couple shouting up the street, two friends laughing, high heels clack on the sidewalk, tires burned rubber at a turn. Music, motion, life. I want to breathe and take it in. Let it settle the chemical antsiness so I can just be me. I lift my head to see the cloud-spotted night sky where vague blotches obscure a distant blanket of stars. This was the worst time of night, when I could no longer avoid walking through this bustle alone, with an empty apartment waiting. I reach the bus stop and huddle on the bench, watching cars pass. Six years ago, when my mother passed, I told myself I'd get used to it, being alone. And I'm good, most days. I fill my life with work and lately the quest for a salaried job. But I have my moments when I'm sitting when the whole scope of life comes crashing in. I reach for my phone, thinking to text one of my best friends. But as soon as I see that, it's 11 at night, and I think better of it. The bus breaks whoosh and squeaks, and I step up to the doors. The driver gives me a nod, and I flash a tight smile back and say, Thank you, as I slip my bus fare into the till. Unwinding my earbuds as I walk up the aisle and judge the most isolated seat as a matter of course. I slip in and pop in the earbuds, select a song in my phone, and stare out the window. The city is alive on a Saturday night. So much light, so much noise, and here I sit in contrast blasting Adele where only I can hear. We stop at a light. I glance down at my phone as we do. There's a Starbucks here, and I have internet for a minute. I use it to quickly check my email. No response to any of the resumes I submitted. There's a response to 45-minute application I did, in desperation, not even knowing if the job pays better than the cafe. I tap it and read. Thank you for your interest in Avian Mobile. However, we are not holding interviews at this time. Please feel free to apply at a later date for positions matching your education and resume. I throw my head back against the seat, letting a long breath pass my lips. I can't express my hopelessness in words. I feel squeezed on all sides. 
I'm struggling to grasp some path to my future, but it feels like scaling a rock wall that keeps crumbling under my fumbling amateur finger holds. I see my apartment complex tower on the corner. It's a big white building, situated between downtown shopping streets and window-dominated skyscrapers. It also features peeling paint and plumbing in need of modernization, which meant, of course, the rent was right for a barista with school loans. I thank the driver again as I get off at my stop, and jangle keys again as I jog up the front stairs and into the lobby of the complex. The corridor to my apartment is highlighted in bright fluorescent lighting, another dated technology that put this place in my price range. So it makes me smile, just for the familiarity of it. I've lived here since I was 18, two years after my mom's death. My family was her and me, always. I turn the corner and my keys are already in hand. I am so ready to open the door and go nab the Pinot Grigio from the fridge. But there's a paper taped to my door. I've never been late with rent. I don't have a lot, but I take my obligations seriously. I skipped meals and remained working in hole-ridden sneakers to guarantee I pay rent and the minimum on my academic loan. Thank you very much. I yank it down so hard the top corner is torn off. Tenant, it reads. The complex has been sold to a new owner who has scheduled extensive renovations. The building will not be habitable during construction. As such, you have 90 days to relocate before the renovations begin. The owner understands if you must withhold rent in order to have the first and last month's deposit for a new place, so rent will not be enforced over the next three months. Leaving the premises by the end of this term, however, is imperative. Thank you for your understanding in this endeavor, and feel free to lodge all concerns to the email s.jacobs at airmail.com. What the fuck? I shout at my paper. The door to the apartment behind me opens, and Jean, half of the married couple living there, leans in the doorway. I wave the page at him. Yep, you got the notice. He tilts his carton of espresso swirl ice cream at me. Dahlia and I responded with ice cream night. I have a bottle of wine, possibly two with my name on it. He raised his ice cream. Good luck, neighbor. You too, I say and finally bumble my way into the apartment feeling like a wooden puppet. I pour my wine in a tumbler, because I'm alone and who the fuck cares? I have tomorrow off work. I settle on my second-hand sofa in front of my free-cycle Ikea coffee table with my five-year-old laptop. Then I open Zillow, just to get an idea of current rental prices and what wage I'm going to need to bring in to move. The cheapest apartments are three-fourths of my pay. No room for rent and low payments. I down a quarter of my wine and set the tumbler on my coffee table. Fuck, I mumble to the screen because it's the only thing that sees me. The silence of my apartment swallows me and the void is crushing. Samuel Jacobs, Chapter 2 Thank you, Caroline. I say to the caterer as I grab my plate of herbed salmon, arugula salad, and cold pearl couscous. Thank you, Mr. Jacobs, she says with a smile. I take my plate to the larger outdoor table on the deck. My brothers are already in their seats, and I pause a second just to see them all. Once this was a nightly occurrence. Now, 
I see them one-on-one, mostly. Bennett and Everett wear the exact same pale blue polo shirt and khaki pants, probably to mess with the driver on the way over. They enjoy mind games far too much for my comfort and maximize the identical twin thing when it got them exactly what they wanted. Right now, they were egging on Matthew, who was two years younger and the most serious of my brothers. Matthew and I got along the best. After setting my plate down, I take a seat. That is supposing, Maddie, that you have a life, says Everett. Fuck you very much, Rhett, says Matt. I arch an eyebrow as I pour lemonade from the pitcher on the table. At the table, Maddie? Besides, you guys, this is about Matt graduating grad school and Gareth getting into law school. I raise my lemonade. A nice lunch. Basketball match, Rhett asks. Hey, says Ben, looking down at himself. Wardrobe says it's tennis day. Boo, says Rhett. Did I leave clothes here? Nope, I tell him. Well, fuck, says Rhett. Table, says Matt, Gareth, and me at the same time. Ben snorts his lemonade. Anyhow, I continue. Congratulations, Matt and Gare. I wish you had walked, Matt. He shrugged. I got the first one, Sam. I don't need a repeat. Oh, come on, I say. I wasn't embarrassing you. No. Everyone angling to get a job at JTEC was. Suddenly, everyone knew my name. That's a good thing, says Rhett. I don't like it, Matt says. I never blocked so many girls' numbers. Ah, says Ben. You and Rhett could compare notes. He's always meeting girls, enjoying a few nights, and then blocking them. I did not need to know that, I mumble. I'm good, says Matt. I don't need to know what you two get up to after hours. Is a decent lunch with my little brothers too much to ask? I spread my hands wide. Have you dated, Sam? asks Gareth. I feel like I should know that one. Kid, that is not what we are here for, I say, and jab my arugula with my fork. We don't talk about his love life, says Matt. Yeah, big bro is a liability, says Rhett. You're one to talk, I tell him. Sam has the need to save girls. He needs to be the one who swoops in and makes their life better, says Everett. We can really stop talking about me, I say. Isn't that what raising us was? Gare asks. You need to be needed, big bro. Don't we all, in some way, asks Matt. More like he doesn't know who he is without providing for someone, says Ben. I hate how accurate that is. Yes, I've been in the provider role emotionally and fiscally for my brother since the age of 14. I taught myself to cook, so I didn't have to have every meal catered, as we lived off what Dad left behind, until I came into my trust and put all my brothers through college. Working my butt off for others was a deep part of who I have become. Big bro has a Prince Charming complex, says Rhett, and it's my turn to roll my eyes. He wants to find the perfect girl who needs to be saved from destitution, but is actually worth the investment of his acts of service, says Ben. Sam, you haven't been in the dating game for five years. So, I ask, polishing off my couscous. Gare is going to be through law school in two, three years, and then we'll all have our own lives. Completely. Even if we spend holidays together and whatnot, bro, you're going to need something for yourself. You commit. You need that. I bristle. I can feel my shoulders tense. He might be right. But still, 
My bad luck with girls made me fear that I would destroy everything I built for my brothers because I let in the wrong money-grubbing woman. I want to challenge you, says Ben. I challenge you to get the phone number of a pretty girl, he says. Just dip your toe back in the water, big brother. Just a number, I ask, eyeing him warily. I begrudgingly understand they are trying to look out for me. Yes, says Ben. Well, a name and a number. Fine, I say. We'll ask at Matt's birthday, Ben warns. Two months. Okay, I reply. Maybe they have a point. But I really need a girl with some goddamn morals. Tired of being broken by greedy women. But if a shit storm ensues, you have yourselves to blame. Table, they chorus. Really? says Rhett. We might be too old for these rules. Fine, I say, standing and slapping the table. How about that scotch? Yes, please, says Matt, and he follows me away from the table as the twins fall to bickering, switching to their invented jargon that no one else can follow. The rec room is in the owner's suite, and when I reach the kitchenette there, I pour a slight amount for each of us. The twins wander to the pool table where they gather their cues. Gareth rifles through the closet and comes out with the Nintendo Switch and waves it at Matt, who grins. Console games? Ben asks, shaking his head and knocking his drink back. Maybe you don't have to worry about any of us growing up after all. As if we don't run a mobile game company. Matt flipped him the bird and Ben chuckled. I'm starting us off since y'all may be come indoors, Rhett says removing the triangle from the table and chalking his cue. Oh, poor Rhett. Such a sacrifice, says Gare, as the opening of Street Fighter starts on my TV, and Matt settles back with his controller in hand. You two are such nerds, Rhett shot back. Better than egotistical man-whore, Matt deadpans. Rhett's cue slides and his shot is affected. I note Matt's subtle smile flash and fade. Rhett curses. Ben chortles. Oh, burn! Ben takes a far better shot, and Rhett's cursing grows both in volume and vehemence. Your turn, Sam, Ben says. What's with the pause? Just happy to have you all here. I line up my cue and take a shot. Is that why you bought that place downtown? Rhett asks, taking his turn. Yeah, I'm building a penthouse on the top floor, I say. It will be more appropriately sized for a single person and closer to all of you. So, yeah. Ah, says Ben. Less driving for you when you need to pull Rhett out of the drunk tank. Rhett flips off his twin. Then my phone dings and I pull it from my pocket. Anything important? Matt calls from the couch without looking in my direction. I scan the text. Just the 90-day notices went out to the tenants. I'll meet with the architect tomorrow and start the ordering and scheduling of supplies. Gonna be in the city a lot, then, says Gare. You know what I miss since I've been away? What? I ask. The sandwiches at Gino's Bistro and the coffee at Beans in the Bag. I laugh. All right. You coming into temp on your break? I ask. Sure. What do you need me to do? Admin work, says Matt. Tony is out. We just hired this guy, Tim, to run the accounting bit, but we're still understaffed in the scheduling. Okay, I can do that. Keep busy. Gare nods over his controller, brown curls bouncing. Start Monday, and I'll bring you that sandwich from Gino's, I tell him. Hell yeah, says Gare, 
as the bell dings and informs him that Matt just beat him again. Shit. I laugh and continue to lose my game to Bennett. Thank you again to Drea for meeting with us. Her holiday book, Cookie Crumbles, will be featured on My Secret Obsession in the month of December. Please check out My Secret Obsession's website to get Drea's links. She is on TikTok, Facebook, and Threads. To keep up with various novels and authors that we will feature, you can follow My Secret Obsession on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Cherish Lively, or visit the website at tinyurl.com slash Cherish Lively. Goodbye.